Hallelujah. Father, we want to thank you for your goodness. We want to thank you for your love, for your provision, <laughs> for your grace, which you wish to lavish on us. And I want to thank you for your undying, unending love and all that you have made. You are so good. And we stand here and bask in your goodness and this day and every day after proclaim your goodness to your praise, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I've entailed today's message, leading or following. One can do either or neither, but can't do both. Kind of a little interesting, different title. And what we are going to be talking about, you know, with this is we're going to be hitting on uh, Mark chapter 5, the parable of the demoniac. And at the end, you know, after he got set free, he wanted to go in the boat with Jesus, right? And what did Jesus say? No, no, you can't go. And uh, that's what we're going to be heading to. So you can lead, are you leading or are you following? One can do either or neither, but can't do both. And that's where we're going to end up and it'll just take a little ride to get there, but we will get there. Now, last week, Jeff Turner was with us, had a phenomenal time with him. I mean, the things that he shared and uh, what it inspired, just so thankful and so appreciative of that. And uh, the parable that we talked about is in Luke 5, and that's what we're going to uh, be digging into and starting out. Actually, it is Mark 5. Okay. Can't trust my notes, so I have to correct that. But uh, Mark, the fifth chapter, starting in the first verse. It says, Then they, Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And something important to realize about that country is that was always a city of Israel, but then when Rome came in the scene, they took it away from Israel and gave it to Syria. And then for a while, when Herod was alive, they gave it back to him. Then they returned it to Syria. Now, this village or this city, what it was, it was a very wealthy city. Wealthy people lived there. It wasn't just your average uh, uh, Joe Schmo. It was very wealthy people, people that had money. And from raising the pigs there, you can tell that they weren't good kosher Jews. But Jesus went there. Jesus went to places that the religious said, you shouldn't be going. And if Jesus did that 2,000 years ago to share God's love, it makes sense the same today that we need to be going to similar places. Now it says in verse 2, And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling around the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, can you imagine that? You know, Jesus lands and this crazy guy comes running up to him and his disciples. And I can just imagine what his behavior was like. Now, I remember one time when I went to D.C. and... Uh, they have all these people with all these political things, and uh, this one guy had this newspaper, and he wanted to sell it to me, you know, and, you know, just for a donation of all the atrocities that was going on in his home country, and 
I'm like, okay, give him money. Then this guy came up to me. And he's like, what are you doing giving him money? They're doing that to people here in our country, here and now, and you're supporting me. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I did not realize that. I thought, no, that's here. And I tried to use all of my skills to back away from him, and he just kept on getting louder and louder and getting in my face. And the guy that he gave him money is just, yeah, he's around here all the time and harassing everyone. And so I tried all my skills, and it wasn't working. I said, well, I'm sorry. I offended you. I cannot take this back, but I won't do it again. And I started walking away, backing up, and he just started, you know, getting closer and closer. I ended up running, and he's chasing me. And I was so thankful back then I could run faster than him, and I ended up going to the Smithsonian and lost him in there. Now, picture Jesus and his disciples and this crazy guy who doesn't keep chains on him. And I mean, he's half naked and he's cutting himself. I mean, I'm sure he looks like a mess. I imagine his uh, disciples were kind of like uh, a deer's headlight look, you know, kind of like, well, what is going on? Glad the man's with us, but, uh, but we're kind of freaked out by this. Now, look at the people there. Now, how would this typically have been handled by Romans or the typical person? They would have taken the person, thrown him in prison, or killed him. But they put up with this nonsense. Actually, looking at it, trying to bind him in chains and doing things to preserve his life, that village actually acted quite merciful to him. But that's not the subject of this message. But what it says here is that this man had an unclean spirit, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean by an unclean spirit? Is this referring to this man's spirit being unclean or unhealthy? Or is it referring to another spirit, an unclean spirit, being in the man? Now there's some discussion that people can have and do have on that. Now, Back 2,000 years ago, there were two main religious groups in Israel. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they followed the law explicitly. They embraced angels, demons, the hereafter. The Sadducees, though, they only accepted part of the Bible, not all the Bible. So they only accepted the Torah. All the other books were religious writings. I mean, it's great to look at them and glean from them, but it's only the Torah. And they rejected angels. They rejected the concept of demons. And they did not believe in a hereafter. Now, one thing that I'm starting to run into today, I have discussions with a lot of people that, and you will be hearing this, and you've heard this, People who don't believe that there's an actual Satan or people who don't believe that there's actual demons. Now, I do understand the word Satan and uh, devil, diablos, it talks about accuser, adversary, and that's the meaning of the word. And it can also be a proper noun referring to a person or an entity. One. Second, I believe historically the church has given this person called Satan and all of his minions that follow him and work with him, way too much power, making him stronger than Jesus. Anything that the enemy did, that this individual did, to try to corrupt what God did, he's not more powerful than God. It's important that we realize this. Now, if we bounce ahead, 
uh, which I try not to do too often, but in verse 8, we're going to see where Jesus, and you all know the story, I believe, uh, where Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, what happens when a man's spirit leaves him? He dies. That's what Ecclesiastes says. The body without the spirit is dead. Did the man fall over dead when Jesus? No. So it wasn't his spirit. It's not referring to his spirit being unclean. There was actually an entity that was in him and left. There is a true, I do believe that there is a true being called Satan, and I do believe that there are demonic entities. One of the things that I see happening in grace circles, and you know, I was questioning God, you know, over a while of all the different extremes that I've been in over the years, you know, just according to nominal Christianity, the different types of movements. And you know what I felt God saying is that I wanted you to experience all these different dimensions. And one of the things that I mentioned with running in grace circles, I'm running into people who don't believe that there's a Satan, that don't believe that there's demons. And again, I don't believe in putting undue emphasis in them. I like the way Smith Wigglesworth, uh, what he had to say, he woke up one night, heard the rocking chair going, and he went downstairs, and he said he saw Satan sitting in the rocking chair. Now, how he knew it was Satan, I have no idea. But he said, oh, it's only you, and he went back to bed. I mean, really? Peter says Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But he can't because he doesn't have any power over the child of God. Now, what I've found in grace circles and what I have you know, actually got involved in myself is a very academic approach. Moving away from experiential and more into academics and theology. The way that we view things, paradigms, that's good, that's important. But what I've found a lot of times that people are taking out the experiential. I remember when I first became a Christian, when I, I was raised in church all my life, but when I realized that God is real and that he dwelt within me. And I was working for the hospital, I was going out to the state home, which is interesting, and drawing blood there, and it's interesting because now I work there as a counselor because uh, it's an educational institution now. <laughs> but the first time I went in this building after saying yes to Jesus, the staff is there helping me and I go to take this lady's blood and she looks up at me and she says, so tell me, what the hell do you know about Jesus? I'm like, oh my gosh, how does she know I just became a Christian? And then the staff's like, oh my gosh, this woman has been institutionalized all her life. She is a deaf mute. She can't speak. It was documented. He had to show me in the notes. I had no idea to deal with that stuff. I do believe, I'm not a Sadducee. I do believe that there are angels. I do believe that there are demons. And I do believe in the power and the authority that God's given us. And I do believe in the finished work of the cross. And we need to move beyond academia, not renouncing it, but embracing it, along with practical theology and experiential theology. And that's not the thrust of this message. In verse 6, this demoniac, as people call him, when he saw Jesus from afar, 
He ran to Jesus. Can you imagine standing there and this guy's running to you? I've been there. I've done that. Bought the t-shirt. I don't like that t-shirt. I don't want to buy any more t-shirts like that, okay? You catch my drift. Jesus and the 12 stood their ground. Jesus knew who he was, and the 12 knew who Jesus was, and that Jesus knew who he was, so I'm sure they all kind of got behind him and let him be in the front, kind of like that goldfish there. He's a man. <laughs> you guys are going toe-to-toe -to -toe with each other. I mean, Peter didn't even have a sword at that point, and when he got one, he didn't do too well with it anyways. But it says the man ran to Jesus from afar, and it says, and then he worshipped him. Now, imagine this. This man with an unclean spirit, and the picture that we try to paint is that he is just totally consumed by the enemy, which he was consumed but can demons worship God? No, they don't worship. But this man did. He fell down and he worshiped. And when we look at the word uh, for worship in the Greek, it means to love, to adore, to show adoration, to venerate, to lift on high. That's what he was doing. The purpose is not to get into arguments or uh, about what worship is and that type of thing, but he paid homage. And then, right when he was doing that, the unclean spirit within him cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This man wanted something to do with Jesus. How in the heck did he know who Jesus was? I believe what happened and transpired, the only logical thing, because there weren't posters, Jesus is coming, and he couldn't go online and check and find out that information or turn on the radio or TV and get that information. I believe he connected with the Spirit of God, and he felt the clean spirit coming. He felt the Redeemer coming. It's just kind of like Job when he said, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end he shall reign on the earth. I believe that is that same heart that this man had, and he fell in that. And then this unclean spirit that was within him rose up and said, What do, uh, what have I to do with you, Son of the Most High God? What have I to do with you? This man might want something to do with you, but I'm in control of him. What do I have to do with you? I don't care about him. All I care about is me. And then it's interesting because he says, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. <laughs> He's begging. He's pleading. Please, don't torment me. Don't cause me pain, trauma, travesty. And then Jesus responded to this man. And actually, what he said to the spirit, it wasn't responding to the man. And the spirit said, I, there, okay? He said, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked the unclean spirit what's your name and he answered saying my name is legion for we are many now the word legion in the greek it means a great number of soldiers depending on the time period it was anywhere from 3,000 to 6,600 soldiers there were a lot of entities that considered themselves i but you know our name is legion 
started talking in the plural. I love how Jeff brought that out last week. Okay. Now, Legion begged, all these begged with one voice, earnestly, that he, Jesus would not send them out of the country. He wasn't saying, don't send us to Syria, or don't send us to the USSR, which wasn't around back then. The word country there means the countryside. Keep me in this vicinity. Why do you think that is? Well, Jesus said earlier, he said, when a spirit leaves, a man goes in the dry places, and then after it's been out there a while, it comes back looking. Because we like that place, and we want to vacate it again. Or we want to fill it again. We want to fill the vacancy. I believe that's what was going on there. Now, an important thing to realize about man, and this is some of the thought process that kind of came down from uh, Jeff's message. God created man in his image and his likeness. God created man holy, H-O-L-Y. And he created us holy, W-H-O-L-E-Y. We are whole. We were created whole and one, and we were created whole and one in him. The word holy, it refers to unity, to oneness, and it's that perfection in oneness. God can only act one way. He is one. He is in totally, total unity. That's why Jesus said, I can only do what I see the Father doing. I can only speak what I hear him saying. And that's why John says, as he is, so are we in this world. There's a lot of people that think that now that I'm forgiven, now that I've got grace, I can go out and do anything I want. No, what grace does is it connects us in that holy with him, with the H and with the W, that we are one, we are in union. And just as Jesus could only do what you're doing, Father, it's the same thing with me. Just as Jesus could only speak what you're doing or what you're saying, it's the same thing with me. What James said, or Titus said, is that the grace of God empowers us and equips us to live in the fullness of the life that God created us. Man was created holy in God's image and his likeness. Then what happened on the scene and what the church focuses on is the issue of sin. Now, I'm running into a lot of circles where people, I'm having discussions with people, and this has been going on for a long time, that sin does not exist. I don't have the scriptures here, but that is not true. What Jesus sacrifice on the cross did was it removed the guilt of sin it didn't remove sin itself second what we talked about in communion if you are a gentile if you were never a jew you were never under mosaic law paul said sin is not taken into account where there is no law romans 5 that was before the law, sin happened. It wasn't laid to anyone's account. After the law, sin continues to happen. It's not laid to anyone's account. One of the difficulties with sin is the church has a wrong concept of what sin is. 
When we talk about sin, immediately everyone thinks about behavior. But think about this. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest any man boast. If we look at sin as behaviorism, what does that make it? About works, not grace. Now, the word sin, the word harmatia in the Greek, it means to miss the mark. Looking at the lexicons, it also says this, to be without a share in. You're missing out on your share. That's the mark. When Adam sinned, he chose to believe the lie that he had to do something to be more like God. When Adam ate of the tree, he questioned that God was who he declared, who he revealed himself to be. That is what sin is. It is an identity crisis. Not knowing that you are God's image, that you are God's likeness, and not knowing, not realizing that God is as good as he is. Satan was never powerful to change the nature of man. You do not have two natures. You never did. Man never did. Colossians 1.21 tells us we became alienated and enemies in our own minds, in our own thinking. It was never a real thing. It's a mind game. That's why Paul, he speaks repeatedly through the New Testament, put off lying, but they translated it wrong. If you look at the Greek text, virtually every time he says that, what he's actually saying is, therefore, having put off the lie. Not plural lies, but singular lie. What lie? The granddaddy of them all. That you're not like him, which means you have to do something to be like him, but why do you really want to be like him? Because he's not as good as you thought he was. So do you really want to be like him? That caused quite the dilemma in Adam. Now the word harmatia, it is derived from the Greek word meros. The word meros, if you look in any lexicon, this is what it's going to say. It means division. It means a part in contrast to the whole. It means a section or allotment. It means the part assigned to one. When Adam sinned, what he did was meros. What he did was he accepted only being part of the whole that instead of being fully in God's image and likeness, I'm only a little bit and I have to fill these gaps. What's happened to Adam at that point is he became fragmented. He was no longer holy, holy one, holy H, holy W, one. He was fragmented in many parts. He became shame bound. And you see where he got this lie from, the lie was from the serpent. Did you know that God created Satan as an evil entity to go out and do horrible things? No, he did not. Anyone who tells you that, that is a lie. Satan was created, and according to what we understand, or what we've been told, is that he was in charge of worship in heaven, the adoration, the love of God. And then at one point, he lifted himself up and said, who are you? I am your equal. And he rebelled. He was lifted up in pride. 
You see, what it says is that Jesus was made a little lower than what? The angels. When he became flesh. But here's an interesting thing. To which of the angels did God say, you are my son, this day I have begotten you? You see, man was made in God's image. But angels were not made in God's image and God's likeness. You see, somehow what happened with Satan, somehow what happened with those that followed him in his rebellion, they embraced the lie that God is not good and that they had to rise above him. And what happened at that point, they became fragmented. And you know what fragmented does? It spreads fragmentation. And that's what happened in the garden. Man became fragmented. As a therapist, there's different therapies that I work with with individuals, and it's taking individuals who are fragmented and trying to unite them into wholeness, into unity, to bring them all together. There's all different things that are going on there. But that's what sin is about, and that's what the enemy introduced. That's what the serpent introduced in the garden, this fragmentation. And that's what this demoniac was experiencing, because in himself there was he himself, but there were all these other unclean spirits in there with him, and along with his own baggage, and he was a tormented man. Now Jesus said, you know, the legion said, please don't let us depart from the region. So what Jesus said now, it says in verse 11, now a large church of swine was feeding there near the mountain. So the demons begged him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. Now notice there it says demons, plural. That's singular, then plural, and it's just showing this fragmentation that's going on, okay? Send us into the pigs. And at once, Jesus said, go ahead. He gave him permission. Go ahead and go. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. How many swine were there? About 2,000. you have any idea how much 2,000 pigs would sell for on the market today? They sold for a heck of a lot of money back then. Not with Jews, but with the Gentiles. I mean, Romans were like uh, Americans, you know. They love their pig. They love their pork. They love their ham chops, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Jesus gave them permission, and they went into the swines, who were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Smart piggies. They didn't want to put up with that fragmentation. They didn't want to put up with what the enemy, the lie, had to offer. An animal, in essence, smarter than a human being. But don't they say pigs are one of the most intelligent animals? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now in verse 14, it says, those who uh, fed the swine, so those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. <clears throat> And they went out to see what had happened. Then they came to Jesus, and they saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, again, who are these people? They weren't Jews. They were Romans. They were Syrians. They were, they were different groups of people who did not embrace Judaism. 
and they were like, what the heck is going on here? It's just like when I told you what happened when I worked at Oakdale earlier in the message. When that person who was deaf and mute spoke to me, who had been deaf and mute all their lives, and they were, shoot, in their 40s. And they spoke to me. The staff was like, what happened here? This is, they, they were freaked out. They were afraid. They didn't know how to explain it. You see, that's the way these people were. And that's the way I would expect them to be. And the reason they were that way is because they were not engaged. What were they not engaged with? With the true nature of God. You see, this demoniac, Jesus came, and what happened? He went running to Jesus and fell down and started worship. These men, they didn't have any understanding. They had no conceptualization. They saw something awesome had happened. They saw that they had lost a large sum of money. They were afraid, and those who saw it told, told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And then what did they do? They pled with Jesus to leave the region. Now, if someone just cost me a lot of money, I think I'd do a heck of a lot more than that. You're going to make restitution. I'm going to hold you ransom for your followers. You know, for, you know I'm, I'm going to do something, but no. None of that happened. They realized that a power had come to them that was so great, and they just, you need to get out of here. We're terrified. We don't know how to deal with this. You see, I said, are you a follower or are you a leader? There's another group of people there that I didn't mention there, the non-engaged. We're going to talk more about them momentarily. Now, Jesus got in the boat, and he who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus that he might be with him. Said all of that to get to this point. Are you a leader or a follower? You can be either or neither, but you cannot be both. What are you? This demoniac wanted to what? Follow Jesus. And Jesus said, no. He said he did not permit him. He permitted the legion to go into the pigs, but he said, no, you can't come with me. I always used to have trouble with that. Why did you say that, Jesus? Why wouldn't you let him come with you and learn more? There's a reason why. This is what Paul says. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Jesus told his disciples toward the end of my ministry, his ministry, he said, I'm going to be leaving you soon. And don't grieve, don't wail because I'm leaving you. Because unless I leave, the comforter won't come. He wasn't talking about a King James Bible because that wasn't for another 1,600 years down the road. He wasn't talking about a completed biblical canon uh, put together by men because that wasn't for another 350 years down the road. He was talking about God himself, Holy Spirit, coming and indwelling. And he said the comforter, he himself, he will lead you, he will guide you, he will teach you all truth. You see, what Jesus was telling this man was, you don't need to follow me because you got me inside you. 
and you experienced my power personally yourself. Now let's look at the 12. What did they experience of Jesus? They saw him feeding the multitudes. Who was that done to? Other people. They saw him casting demons out of people. Who was that done to? Other people. They saw him raising the dead. Who was that done to? Other people. Peter, his mother-in-law, got healed of a fever. Who was that done to? Someone else. I don't recall any of the disciples having something as powerful done personally to them as what this demoniac had. He encountered Jesus. He encountered the reality of Jesus in his life. He understood what it meant to be a new creation, and he wanted to follow and learn more about that. And I believe what Jesus was telling him is, you don't need to follow me because I am in you. And Holy Spirit, he is just causing all truth to rise up out of you. You have got everything you need. You are equipped. You are empowered. You are free. He who the Son has made free is free indeed. Amen. That man was made free. Jesus didn't need another tag along with him. He was free. He was equipped to be a leader, an influencer, rather than a follower needing transformation. You see, Jesus said, you can't come with me, but go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for who? For you. Tell them how he has had compassion on who? You. God loves me. This is what he did for me. The people around there knew about him. They knew the stories of this strong guy that did this. The Decapolis, that was not a Jewish region. That was the 10 cities, and it was mixture, and it was people the, that the Jews considered unclean. And Jesus said, you are to go into that area and preach the gospel, the good news. Don't let anyone ever tell you that it ain't about Jesus. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus is for the Jews only. That is a lie. That is the lie. You see, the first Adam wasn't Jewish. And Jesus came as a last Adam. He didn't come as a Jew, but he came as a first Adam before the first Adam committed sin. We see very clearly in Scripture that Jesus ministered to Gentiles. And one of the most powerful ministries here was to a Gentile. Now, are you a leader or a follower? You can't both lead and follow at the same time. Jesus was telling this demoniac, recovered, made new individual new creation he was saying you can't follow me you're a leader you're a fisher of men and what bait are you going to use my love what i've done for you my compassion and they're going to see it and they're going to believe now we hear a lot in the church about being a servant of christ right that i am christ's servant and that's really emulated a servant mentality. Luke 15, 18, the parable of the prodigal. We know that he took uh, his share from the father and he went out and squandered it on uh, 
on very bad living and he was destitute and he was taking care of pigs and he was a good Jewish boy that was bad. Uh, two pigs in the connection here, two pigs in a pot, no. But uh, you know, they, it was connected there and he was like, he was starving and he wanted to eat the slop that the pigs were eating but no one would give him anything to eat. Then he came to his senses and he said, you know something, I'm gonna go to my father in verse 18, 15, 18 of Luke. And he said, Father, I would say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired, what? Servants. <clears throat> when he went to the father and he started saying that, father's arms were wrapped around him. He was weeping and father just talked loudly over him. And he said to who? The servants, go get my ring. Go get my robe. Go slaughter the fattened calf because we are going to celebrate tonight because my son was lost. He was dead and now he's find, found and he's alive. He would not even consider the aspect of being a servant. You know what a following mentality is? A follower of Jesus, it means Jesus, it means I'm a servant. You're not a servant, you're a son. The Jews, they were servants. You're a son. Now some might say to me, but Paul called himself a servant. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now let's take a look at Romans 6.16. Paul said to the Roman church, he said, Do you not know that whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, servants, the word slaves, doulos there, uh, do you not know the ones that you present yourself to obey, that you are that one slaves whom you will obey? whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. What Paul was saying there, and when he's referring to himself being a servant, he's saying, I am a servant of righteousness. My relationship with God is not as a servant. I am a son of God, and I am a servant of rightness, doing what's right. Now the word doulos slave in the Greek has a wide variation of meaning. It can mean a save, but wait a minute. Jesus said, he who the Son has made free is free indeed. We're not slaves. And it says, I didn't put the scripture down, but I no longer call you slaves. We're sons. We're not servants, we're sons. The word slave refers to one who is in permanent relation of servitude to another. And then here's an important connection here. It's referring to his well-being altogether consumed in the will of another or of the other. You see, when Paul talks of himself as a servant, as a slave, what he's saying is, my will is totally consumed in his will. That's what it means to be a son of God. That's what John was talking about when he said, as he is, so are we in this world. Jesus was consumed by the will of Father, and he could only do 
Father's will. He could not do his own will. Adam did his own will, the first Adam. The last Adam realized his will was united with Father. The first Adam became fragmented. The last Adam restored all the parts into perfect unity, into perfect oneness. And the important thing is in John 17, 26, looking at that, the end of John, Jesus' prayer, he said to the disciples, he said, I'm going to now pray for those who are going to believe through your message. Lord, let them be one as we are one. Just like Father, you're in me and I'm in you, let them realize that they're one in us, that we're one in them, and that they're one with each other. You know, we need to stop using our different little denominational names. We have to stop using this and that because you know something? We are all one. The only difference in oneness is whether we realize it or not. The only difference is if we choose to be a leader or if we choose to be one who's not engaged. There's no in-between ground. You see, look at the 12, James and John, and I mean, John, I cannot believe what he attained with how he interacted with his brother. What were they arguing about on the road? Who was going to be the greatest, right? And then what were they arguing about later? Or they said, Jesus, Jesus, hey, they rejected us. Give the word. We'll call down fire from heaven to consume them. And what did Jesus say? You don't know what manner of spirit or power you are of. They were the sons of thunder. But to see John cast off that, that name, and he became the apostle of love. It's the thunder of God's love. That's what it's all about. In verse 20, it says that, and Jesus departed, or and the man departed from Jesus, and he began to proclaim in Decapolis, the ten cities that were Gentile cities, all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. You see, this man was transformed. He did not become a follower. He did not take on the role of a servant, but he took on the role of a son. He realized that he was a son of the living God. Before the cross, he took up that mantle. And he boldly proclaimed, look at what God has done for me. Look at the scars. Look at the chains that the, the prints that are still embedded in my skin. This is how I was treated. I was mad. You can ask anyone. Oh, yeah, we heard about you. Jesus made me free. He who Jesus makes free is free indeed. He is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And this is the new. And you know what the new is? God doesn't hate you. He's not angry with you, but he loves you. Furthermore, this is what the writings of the Jews say, and they don't believe it. He has compassion on all that he has made. And you know something sad? The church doesn't believe that. Because you haven't said the sinner's prayer, God hates you. There's a large portion of Christianity that believes that way, and that is part of the lie that the serpent introduced. He has compassion on all that he has made. You see, this man was transformed into a leader. 
an influencer, influencing those around him with the good that he embraced in embracing God. This man was fully restored before the cross. Or wait a minute, was it before the cross? Revelation 13, 8. Jesus is the lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 9. He gave his grace when? Before time began. You see, here's a wild thing when you start to understand it. That God never had an issue with sin. God was never angry. God was never hateful. God was never spiteful. That is a lie that the, the serpent introduced, that man believed that the Judaism and the church bought hook, line, and sinker. You see, God's heart from the very beginning has been one of a redeemer and the refiner's fire, healing and restoring. Are you leading or following? You can't do both. Well, one's a follower. They're chasing after something and hopes to attain it. Attaining, obtaining something that they don't possess. We're not God chasers. God dwells in us. And it's about embracing him. Leading is influencing others with what one possesses. What a true leader does, a true leader is able to engage those who are not engaged. You see, that's what that demoniac did. He had all the people coming, and he was talking with them. And he said, hey, look at me. He spoke the word. I got set free. I'm new. I'm made new. <clears throat> and you know, Jesus didn't say anything. And the 12 are looking there. You know, they didn't know what to say either. But this man was a preacher there. And he didn't need any lessons. All he had to do was embrace, receive the Father's love. That's what transformed him. Leaders engage the non-engaged as Jesus did with the demoniac allowing the non-engaged to embrace their transformation. And for they themselves to rise up in the role as a leader and influencer uh, and uh, engager and in the transforming process. That's the whole purpose. It doesn't take a seminary degree all it does is, is having an experience with Jesus and realizing that you're already made free. You see, what Jesus told him to do, and Jesus told him to go to the region of the Decapolis and to preach all that he had done, again, that was a region that the Jews hated. There were Gentiles there. They were a mixture. They were half-breeds. The Jews considered them unclean. And Jesus said, go tell them. All that God's done for you and how he has poured out his love on you. Romans 2.4, Paul said this. Do you despise the riches of his goodness and God's goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That's something that the church has forgotten. 
church is too busy in condemning sin. Jesus already condemned sin 2,000 years ago and actually from the very foundation of the world. He said, this shall not stand. And how did Jesus choose to deal with sin? By giving his life. It ain't nothing that any of us do. He already did it all. We just need to believe the good news. We just need to embrace, lay hold of what he already laid hold of for us. His salvation wasn't for some, it was for all. For God so loved the world. It's just as what Paul said in Colossians 1.21. A lot of people still believe they're alienated and enemies with God. But God has never been man's enemy. It's man who believed falsely that God was their enemy. Just like Adam in the garden when he ran from God because he's going to do something nasty, nasty to me because of what I did, did. Matthew 5, 45, Jesus said this, God makes a sunrise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. You see, God's heart is to destroy us with love. And what does he destroy? It destroys. He, his job is to destroy the old man. It was destroyed on the cross, but he wants to destroy any remnant of that lie, of the lie residing in our minds that I'm not like him, that he doesn't love me. You see, here's the interesting thing. The demoniac, he wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to join the 12, right? He did not realize yet that he was a leader and not a follower. He didn't realize yet that he was a son and not a servant. He needed Jesus to reveal that reality, and Jesus did. He said, no, you can't come with me. You go. You tell all <laughs> that I've done for you and in my love for you and for all. Oh, I could do that. That's easy. I thought you were going to give me something hard, and I was willing to do something hard. You know how hard it is to tell people that God loves them? You know how hard it is to tell people that God accepts them just as they are? It doesn't mean that he approves of things that we're doing, but he loves you and accepts you right where you're at. His heart is for you. He has no ought with you. That's hard for most Christians because he's not like that. Because actually, a majority of Christianity is stuck under Old Covenant law. A majority of Christianity wants to mesh law and grace together, and that cannot be done. Because that, according to Paul, is spiritual adultery. It's selling yourself to another. It's having two lovers, and you can't do that. That is unfaithfulness. Can you see what God has done in your life? If you can't see what God's done in your life, that's revealing. There's one of two things going on. One, you've either forgotten it. You know, the hardness of life when we get our eyes off of Jesus, it can cause us to not see what God has done. Or, maybe we haven't yet experienced his revealing. I know that's not the case of anyone in here. And in all reality, all that God's done, according to Paul, has revealed his love that no 
mouth. No person is without excuse. But you know what has caused people to forget? Religion. What we say that you have to do to earn God's favor, to earn God's love, to earn God's acceptance, to earn God's grace, to earn God's forgiveness. That's religion. That is part of the lie. Jesus did away with that 2,000 years ago. I want to encourage you, if you're listening today, that God is dwelling within you. I don't care who you are, his breath is in you. He wants you to know that he fully accepts you, that he died for you, that he's your savior. He's a savior of all men, especially those who believe because they've said yes to him. He has compassion on you. He's reconciled you. He has included you. And the only thing that separates us from that is our belief that it ain't so. Embrace what God's already done. Embrace his love. And Father, in Jesus' name, for those of us who have forgotten the goodness, your goodness, cause us to remember. For those who have not yet experienced, cause them to see. And Lord, my prayer for each and every one of us is a full realization that we're not a servant, we're not a slave, but we're a son. That we're not a follower, but a leader and an influencer. And we give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, amen, amen. I speak as peace, I speak as blessing over each and every one. He loves you, he's crazy about you, he's madly in love with you, and it's like, if God's for you, who can be against you? Be blessed, everyone. Thanks.